From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, also known as GERD, is a common problem affecting an estimated one in five American adults. While a lot of people experience reflux from time to time, GERD is defined as reflux that occurs on a weekly basis. GERD can often be managed by lifestyle changes and medication, but surgery is also an option. On today's program, we'll talk GERD treatment and prevention with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn about vestibular schwannomas, a benign brain tumor that forms on the nerve cells leading from your inner ear to your brain, and genital skin diseases in men. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. GERD. It's a acronym for gastroesophageal reflux disease. Why does it happen? That's what we want to know and what can be done to treat it. Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist and GERD expert, Dr. Jeffrey Alexander. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Gastroenterologist. That in itself is a long word. What, what, what does it mean? What do you do? It's <laughs> a good question. What do I do? But, uh, we study the gastrointestinal tract, which usually goes from the mouth through the stomach, the small ball, the large ball, and then out the rectum. So we, we, we cover the whole gamut. And a lot of you subspecialize, and you're kind of a GERD guy, GERD yeah. expert, right? Yes, I kind of specialize in the esophagus, which deals with GERD. And tell us what GERD is. Well, GERD is, is gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is there's a muscle at the bottom of the esophagus that sort of works like a one-way valve. It allows the food to go down and then stays closed and stops the acid from the stomach coming back up into the esophagus. Now, everyone refluxes through that valve a little bit. But if, if you reflux more through that valve, get more acid in the esophagus, then that may cause damage to the esophagus and may cause a symptom of heartburn, which is kind of a, a burning sensation under the breastbone. Or it may cause a symptom of regurgitation, where there's a liquid sensation of material from the stomach coming up into the chest or even in the mouth. So the terms heartburn, acid reflux, and GERD are often used interchangeably, but they're not the same, are they? Not the same. You know, GERD is, is this occurring that's causing symptoms. Heartburn is the symptom of burning under the breastbone. Regurgitation is the symptom of liquids coming back toward the mouth. In gastroesophageal reflux disease, if someone has one of those symptoms, uh, significantly affecting the quality of their life. It's um, so it's an umbrella term? Is that what you would kind yes. of call it? Okay. Well, it's, it's, it, it, the symptoms of GERD are heartburn and regurgitation. Gotcha. And can't those symptoms be confused with a heart problem? No, a absolutely. heart attack? Absolutely. That, you know, that the classic hallmark symptom is burning under the breastbone, but it could be pressure. It could be a, a nauseated sensation. It could just be a generalized discomfort, very similar to the symptoms people can get with a heart attack. And, and it, sometimes it can be very difficult to distinguish the two. Okay, we said so heartburn is one of the symptoms of GERD. What is heartburn? Yeah, heartburn is is a sensation under the breastbone of a, of a burning feeling. Frequently it occurs after meals. Sometimes it occurs after spicy foods, tomato-based foods, chocolate, spearmint, peppermint. can occur after big meals and lying down. can occur after alcohol. 
that's the hallmark symptom of, of gastroesophageal reflux. So the lying down is why more people would experience it at night than during the day. Yeah, frequently if, if, if that if that muscle's not working so well and you lie down, then then the esophagus and the stomach are at the same level and the acid can, can slide up. And it, it's not uncommon for people with a, with, with a bad valve to develop heartburn symptoms at night after over, particularly if they overeat and go to bed. And so, uh, the issue is that the stomach can tolerate acid and the acid is in the stomach to aid digestion and digest our food. But if that acid gets back up into the esophagus, it causes pain. Perfect. Esophagus doesn't like acid. Esophagus doesn't like acid. All right. And what about causes? Well, causes are, are generally a, a weakness of the muscle, okay, uh, or increased pressure on the abdomen. If, if you know, if you gain weight, a lot of weights is increased pressure on the abdomen, kind of pushes in the stomach and kind of stresses that valve. Uh, uh, so overeating uh, certain foods, ones we talked about, can have some effect on that muscle. Uh, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol are big factors, but the major factors probably are a weak muscle. Exacerbated by eating, overeating, big meals, and big meals are lying down. And uh, what about obesity? Aren't they more people who are obese more likely to have it? And pregnant women? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Obesity and pregnant women, there's more pressure on the belly, which kind of just pushes things back upwards. Uh, through that through that valve back up in the esophagus and yeah those are certainly risk factors very common for pregnant women to have a reflux and the hormones have an effect there too but often it's just a re- effect of the weight of the fetus on the abdomen and do some people just have a weak muscle yes and that's I mean, called the lower esophageal sphincter right lower esophageal sphincter and and people can have a hyalurhernia where the there is some separation of the of the diaphragm, which is where the sphincter, the esophagus, goes into the through the diaphragm into the stomach, and if that weakens, that can take away some of the strength of that muscle per se. So when a layperson lay may say I have a hiatal hernia, well, hiatal hernia is some of the stomach coming up in the esophagus, which may or may not be associated with a reflux. However, if you do have a large hiatal hernia, it does make that muscle function weaker and is more likely to be associated with gastroesophageal reflux. Are there some medications that can make it more likely that you'll have reflux? There are medications, anticholinergic medications particularly. But that would be like what are um, anticholinergics? Anticholinergics can be seen with with a multitude of medications, cardiac medications and others, but they're really not major players. Theophylline can do it, but they're not major players, and I think that the the major players are the obesity, overeating, lying down. Why is this of concern? I mean, what are the potential complications of having acid in the lower end of your esophagus? Yeah, good point. I mean, the th- things we worry about are development of, biggest concern is development of Barrett's esophagus, which is a result, the esophagus kind of transforms to look more like stomach tissue as a result of reflux injury. The only reason we really care about that is that does have an increased risk of esophageal cancer. Now, if you, so reflux is, is in long-term reflux is probably the major risk factor for esophageal cancer. Now, that being said, esophageal cancer is not that common in the country, uh, but it, 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 it's our big concern to evaluate this. Also, reflux can it can cause damage to the esophagus, which can cause bleeding, and it can cause narrowing of the esophagus or a stricture, so that when people eat food, it, it gets stuck on the way down. But the real big concern is is this rising incidence of esophageal cancer. So you really want to keep the acid in the stomach. 
That's a good plan. (laughs) And how about a diagnosis? Can you, uh, by talking to someone, pretty much make the diagnosis, or are there tests that you do to confirm that they have reflux? Yeah, I think that I'd like to think I can talk to you and make the, make a diagnosis pretty consistently. Probably as long as you've been doing I've, it. I've been you doing this 30 can. years. But if I look at scientific <laughs> evidence, you know, I'm not better. I'm you know, maybe 50%, but I think probably closer to 75%, but not perfect. So the gist is that if someone has very typical symptoms, I think we frequently make the diagnosis by uh, clinically talking to the patient and may try them on a, on a diagnostic uh, treatment trial. But... Often we end up requiring to do tests to make the diagnosis, particularly if people with more resistant disease or people who are going to be on long-term therapy or people who are planning on doing some sort of surgical procedure. We really want to be sure we have the right diagnosis. Do you ever have to go down there and take a look? Yeah. The test we can do is we can look with a scope called an upper endoscopy. uh, And if you have severe damage to the esophagus, that makes the diagnosis. But often people don't, and we have to do pH testing, which is a... Uh, a couple different techniques that we can, one is a probe through the nose and one is a, catheter, a probe we just stick in the esophagus at, at the time of endoscopy with nothing out the nose. And those measure acid for 24, 48, or 72 hours, depending on the technique, and allows us then to determine how much acid is in the esophagus. Uh, normally, it should be less than 4%, certainly definitely less than 6%. Uh, and it can also help us to determine over that 48-hour period when when Mr. Smith developed chest pain, he pushes a button. And I can go back and look and say, okay, over that 24-hour period, number one, was there an abnormal amount of acid in his esophagus? And number two, when he pushed the button for his pain, did that or did that not correlate with acid up in his esophagus? And that really helps us in the management of this disease. All right, so Barrett's esophagus is uh, when the acid comes up into the esophagus and it's a, it causes an increased incidence of cancer of the esophagus. And, that's, and Barrett was a doctor, I assume, and he described this condition? Yes, he described it. He was actually not exactly right with what he said, but brought attention to this area. <laughs> All right, our guest is GERD expert, Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Jeffrey Alexander. It's time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about treatment options for GERD. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. <laughs> Our guest is GERD expert, gastroenterologist, Dr. Jeffrey Alexander. We've talked about the symptoms of GERD. We've talked about the causes, and we've talked about the complications. And now we want to talk about the treatment. And I know that there are several options that are available. And what's what's first on your list? How do you first attack the problem in most patients? Yeah, I think that... Some things, if it's very simple, it may just be lifestyle modifications, which uh, generally are don't overeat, frequent small meals, don't eat within three hours of going to bed, uh, don't exercise right after eating, uh, and sleep with the bed elevated if you have symptoms at night. That may take care of a lot of people. So before you even get to over-the-counter medications, those are some things that you should try. Yeah, I think so, depending on the severity of the symptoms. But for infrequent symptoms, that would be the way to go. And and then take something kind of on an as-needed basis. Antacids, such as Maalox or Tums, they will bind up the acid in the esophagus work quickly, within a couple minutes. They don't last very long, but they can relieve symptoms uh, for the occasional symptoms. Uh, Then there are other over-the-counter medications, H2 blockers such as Zantac, Ranitidine, or Pepsid, which is Famotidine, those are 
acid blockers that last longer, 8 to 12 hours, and those can kind of be taken if someone has a bout. If you have a kind of a bout of heart reflux and it's very rare, it's not unreasonable to take an antacid at that time and take a pepsid pill. The antacid will kind of work very quickly. Its effect will dissipate in, in a half hour, whereas the, uh, the pepsid may kick in in a half hour and last for the next eight hours to get you through the rest of the night. Um, so doing both of them is okay? Doing, doing one both. that's instant and one that's long-lasting? Absolutely, yeah. How do you know when you've gotten too much, you've gotten to rely on over-the-counter medications too much? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, if you're having symptoms, you know, more than occasionally, once a week, I think is probably, everyone's got a different criteria for what's too sure. much. And the medical literature suggests two or three times a week. I think that's a little much. If I, if I'm waking up having heartburn once a week, I'm probably going to want to take something to prevent it. So uh, whatever that number may be, once a week is probably enough for me that I think then you ought to go on something preventatively. Uh, a acid blocker for a longer period of time and take it, you know, once a day or twice a day, depending on the compounds, which we can talk about, uh, to prevent the development of acid reflux and, and, the, and the symptoms. So the, the prescription medications that are available are the same as the over-counter. They're just stronger, right? Correct. The ranidine uh, can come in 75s, and the prescriptions are 150. So generally, the over-the-counters are come in variable strengths, uh, but... The generally the same drugs and in in the doses can be very adjustable. So uh, tell us about the the recent recall of ranitidine, uh, brand name Zantac. Yeah, there's been uh, there was a a uh, company in Europe that was found to have contaminants uh, contaminated N nitrosamines, which has kind of been seen in some other comp, other drugs that is uh, a, a carcinogen. Uh, cancer-causing. Cancer-causing drug uh, in their compounds. And they took And that was taken off the shelf. And now two other companies have just taken taken their Zantac off the shelf and recalled all the Zantac. It's unclear which, which preparations this is in. And the actual cancer risk of this is probably very low. But I think the current state of the art would be we have lots of other medications we can use. And I think that we're advising our patients, if you, if you have Zantac, just switch to over-the-counter Pepsid. All right. Uh-uh. So uh, let's talk about surgery. Yeah, well, let's, let, let me just go back a second and talk about the proton pump inhibitors. If the H2 blockers, which is Zantac and Pepsid, are, are a dime, the proton pump inhibitors, which is Omiprazole, Lanzoprazole, Prilosec, Nexium, they're a quarter. So they're more important agents, last longer, and they're probably our mainstay. Uh, proton pump inhibitors. Proton pump inhibitors. And they, uh, you can control people with reflux, maybe up to half of the people with mild reflux you can control with the H2 blockers, Zantac and Pepsid. The other half is going to, are going to need proton pump inhibitors, and the ones that we see are often in the proton pump inhibitors. What is that medication doing? They both block the acid production by the stomach. The H2 blockers block one of the triggers of this proton pump. The proton pump inhibitors block the whole pump. So they are more potent blockers of acid suppression. Blocking acid, then you don't regurgitate the you don't make as much acid, you don't reflux as much acid in the esophagus, and generally can lead to healing of the esophagus if there's injury and prevention of symptoms. But, but don't they have some side effects, the proton pump inhibitors? Yeah, they've gotten a lot, of, a lot of press about the side effects, which is most of which is kind of overblown. That a lot of this is done in retrospective studies, looking back at patient population bases. And the problem there is that we found that proton pump inhibitors are associated with, let's say, a 1.5% increased risk of a uh, people taking those, 1.5% risk of a fracture of the bone. Well, 
and actually, if you look actually look at the studies, it turns out these drugs don't affect the absorption of calcium, and they don't affect the bone density at all. It's just that sicker patients are taking the drugs. The people taking mm-hmm. the drugs are more likely to have other comorbidities, other risk factors uh, uh, for, for these diseases, particularly they're often obesity is often a complicating factor. So it's very difficult that sometimes we think, oh, the drugs show this, but in reality, it wasn't affected the drug. It wasn't really a well-controlled study. It's a result of scientific uh, misadventure to some degree. Uh, but nonetheless, there are some risks to the drugs. Yeah. I think, it's and, like anything. Yes, and That's I think if you don't need the drug, you shouldn't take it. If you can be can control with a lesser drug, you should be on the lesser drug in H2 blocker. If you don't need that high a dose, go for the lower dose. And a lot of the people on these drugs probably don't need them. So they're safe drugs to take if you need them. And if you don't need them, there are some risks. They're a little, a little overblown, but there are some risks that are real, and you need to take them appropriately. All right. Uh-huh. Let's talk about surgery. Let's say that uh, someone has been on uh, medication and they still have a problem. Everything else has failed. Everything else has failed. We're down to surgery. Now, there's uh, our standard surgery is called a Nissen fundoplication, where the surgeons kind of go in laparoscopically, poke a few holes in the belly, uh, uh, put some scopes in, and, and essentially wrap some muscle around the top of the stomach to recreate that valve, uh, that one-way valve that has a, that's failed. And it's a standard procedure, been done for years, works very well. Uh, there are some, there, there could be some difficulty swallowing afterwards, some other side effects, but relatively speaking, if you need the operation, it's a good thing to do. All right, now tell us about that TIF you've got. TIF, yeah. Now there's, the couple, TIF. there's a couple of endoscopic procedures that we've looked at. Tests done through a scope to fix this. We've putzed around with things for for 20 years. Most of them haven't, haven't turned out so well. Um, but there's a couple a couple procedures that look like they've got some staying power and are reasonably. One's uh, one's called a lynx, which is a magnetic necklace. You can be placed around the esophagus, done surgically, but it's less has less complications than a nissen. Uh, and the other one is a thing called a TIF, a, which is done endoscopically uh, uh, through a mm-hmm. scope through the patient's mouth. We kind of create a valve uh, um, similar to a Nissen valve. Now, the endoscopic procedure, the TIF and the links, don't work as well as a surgery, but they're not bad. 90% of the people will, will get off their acid-blocking drugs. How long they last? They look looks like they last at least five years. It's as far as we got the studies out now. So time will tell. But I think we do have... At least now, an endoscopic technique, two, one's a laparoscopic technique that aren't quite as good as a Nissen, but maybe don't have the side effects of a Nissen that are something we can consider. All right, and, and it sounds pretty pretty good. No incision surgery. No incision surgery. All right. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist and GERD expert, Dr. Jeffrey Alexander. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for, thanks for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about vestibular schwannoma, a benign brain tumor. And genital skin diseases in men. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Sleep is an important part of staying heart healthy. Adults who clock fewer than seven hours a night are more likely to have health problems such as heart attack and stroke, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, says adequate sleep can help you reduce your risk of many heart-related issues. So how much sleep do adults need to be heart healthy? 
Dr. Kobetsky says everybody's different and individual sleep needs vary, but the general rule is for adults to get seven to nine hours a night. Now, why is sleep important to heart health? Well, a couple of reasons. If you have a condition such as obstructive sleep apnea, keeping you from getting sufficient sleep, you're at increased risk of arrhythmias or irregular heartbeats. Arrhythmias increase your risk of serious events such as stroke, heart attack, and sudden cardiac death. The second thing is, if you don't sleep adequately, it's been shown that other habits are not as good. You don't eat as well. You eat more junk food. Plus, you might be too tired to exercise. So talk to your health care provider about ways to help you sleep better to improve your heart health. And in other news, eating a healthy diet is not only good for the body, but also the mind. Angie Murad, a dietitian with the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, says eating certain foods can help improve brain health and preserve brain function. There's mounting scientific evidence that shows sticking to a method called the mind diet can make a difference in your risk of cognitive decline and dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. Murad says mind stands for Mediterranean-intervention for neurodegenerative delay. It's a combination of two healthy diets, the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, and includes a variety of brain-friendly foods. It emphasizes leafy greens, berries, nuts, specifically ones that are high in omega-3, fish, and an additional vegetable as well as the leafy greens. Murad says the MIND diet is high in nutrients and is not difficult to follow. Foods to avoid or limit include butter, cheese, red meat, and sweets. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian. Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, have you ever heard of an acoustic neuroma, also called a vestibular schwannoma? Not not until just recently. <laughs> There's only about two or 3,000 that are diagnosed every year in the U.S. An acoustic neuroma, or a vestibular schwannoma, is a benign, usually slow-growing tumor that develops on the main nerve that connects your inner ear with your brain. And here to tell us more about it, the symptoms, the diagnosis, why does it have two names, <laughs> the yeah. treatment, too, is Mayo Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat Specialist, Dr. Matthew Carlson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Carlson. Thank you for having me. So why does it have two names? So it's an antiquated term. The old term is acoustic neuroma, and that came from the idea that it came from the hearing nerve and that it was a neuroma coming from the nerve itself. Benign neuroma is benign nerve tumor. Exactly. Okay. okay. And over time, we've realized that when we, uh, as we studied, when we realized it actually comes from, so the eighth cranial nerve, the, uh, the hearing nerve, actually has three parts to it. It has two balanced nerves and one hearing nerve. And when you look at them more closely, you, you'll realize that most of these tumors are actually coming from the vestibular portion of the eighth nerve. So that's where vestibular comes in. And they actually come from a growth on the outside of the nerve, the insulatory fibers of the nerve, and that's what the Schwann cells are. So the, the technically correct name is vestibular schwannoma. So all of the nerves have a surrounding sheath, kind of like insulation on a wire. And in that that sheath are the Schwann cells, and that's where the term schwannoma comes from. Exactly. Now, fortunately, this is a benign tumor, but rare. You must not, even at the Mayo Clinic, see that many every year. So it's interesting you bring that up. Historically, you've always said acoustic neuromas or vestibular neuromas are very rare, but there's a lot of emerging evidence that says they're more, much more common than previously. And that's probably been driven by the uh, greater access to MRI and also uh, screening protocols for asymmetrical hearing loss. And there's a recent study that we performed at the Mayo Clinic that actually determined that um, about 1 in 500 adults over the age of 70 will acquire an acoustic neuroma during their lifetime. Um, and one in 2,000 adults. So it's more common than we previously thought. It's just not being diagnosed? Um, you know, they're, they are being diagnosed with greater frequency. The, 
there's a lot of people that are walking around with them uh, that you wouldn't know necessarily have them. More particularly in recent years, they're they tend to be smaller at diagnosis with less symptoms, uh, and actually the age demographic is increasing. So people are tend to be older when they're diagnosed. So it, it's not uncommon that a person might have headaches or something like that, and they get an MRI scan and they get an incidental diagnosis. So they weren't expecting to see that tumor there, and actually about one in five or one in six tumors are diagnosed that way right now. Hmm. So if you do have symptoms, what are those symptoms? Yeah, so the most common symptom is asymmetrical hearing loss. So one ear hears worse than the other ear. And then the second most common symptom is ringing in the ear, and hearing loss and ringing kind of go hand in hand. Less commonly, a person might experience imbalance, and even more uncommonly, you can experience vertigo, where you have the sensation of the room spinning around. And what about treatment? Once you discover this, uh, does treatment depend on size and symptoms? Yeah, exactly. So um, probably the two primary things that determine the, uh, the direction of treatment are the number one thing is size, without question. And the second thing is probably patient age and comorbidities and patient preference. So when we comorbidities talk, meaning other diseases, other exactly. medical conditions. That might make it more difficult for them to have surgery or some other treatment. And so when we talk about the treatment of a, of a vestibular schwannoma, we really have to kind of talk about three different size categories. The first is the very small tumor. And the very small tumor is typically something a centimeter or a centimeter and a half or less in size. Patients with a tumor that size can either have observation, so you just get serial imaging, you get MRIs over time to see if it grows, and if it doesn't grow, you can just continue to watch it. Or you can get radiation treatment, and typically radiation treatment is done through the gamma knife, and that's a a single-day outpatient treatment with pretty low risk. Gamma knife? Gamma knife, Can you explain that? Yeah, so gamma knife is a, a procedure that was actually originally developed in Sweden Um, in the 1950s and 60s, and it's been really refined since that time. In the United States, Mayo Clinic has the third gamma gamma knife unit that's ever been opened. Gamma knife uses a stereotactic head frame, so it's basically a small cage that's put on the head for a very short period of time, and that allows you to triangulate the tumor exactly in three-dimensional space and treat it with very low doses of radiation over an hour or so. Even when a tumor is very small, it's really close to important things. We say it's an area of high real estate, and so all the treatments are really focused to to treat the tumor and not affect surrounding structures. So you've got the smallest tumors, which you do a lot of watchful waiting on. Yeah, watchful waiting or radiation, or you can have surgery. The primary benefit of doing surgery on a very small tumor is if the person still has good hearing, you have an opportunity to intervene and maybe remove the tumor and save hearing. And that's a very controversial topic, but that's one of the main arguments for operating on a small tumor. All right, so what about the tumors that are a little larger? So once you exceed that 1.5 centimeter threshold, in most situations, then you're talking about some form of treatment, not just watching it anymore. And the idea is that once it starts getting much bigger than that, then you're starting to get into a different area, more complications and things. So at that point, you either choose radiation or surgery. And once you get over about 2.5 centimeters or 3 centimeters, we say really there's only one main strategy, and that's surgical removal. And the idea is if it's already two and a half or three centimeters, if you treat it with radiation, even if radiation is successful, it often causes a little bit of swelling initially when it's treated. And that little bit of swelling can cause a problem when it's already that size. And so typically a tumor over two and a half, three centimeters, you're treating it with surgery. And when you, I'm kind of making it sound very simple, like it's just observation, <laughs> microsurgery, or radiation. But in reality, there's all these different directions within those therapies that you can actually go down. So it's a little bit complex. Are you less likely to uh, have hearing loss if you do the surgery as opposed to the radiation? That's a really good question. That's really, really controversial. 
it depends on whether you're a radiation therapist or a surgeon. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's certain groups that believe uh, different things, and they've published, um, you know, different outcomes that might suggest one direction or the other. The general rule of thumb is if you have a smaller tumor and you have good hearing, probably your best chance at staying the way you are the longest, meaning having the hearing you have, is probably just watching it. But it probably will go down over time, over slowly over time in most situations. Hmm. If you get radiation, it's unlikely to develop a sudden hearing loss from the radiation. Your hearing loss will, will also go down, but probably a little bit faster than if you just observed it. So there's some radiation effect to the tumor. With surgery, it's kind of an upfront risk. If you win that gamble up front, then you're probably going to retain it longer. But with surgery for a really small tumor, the odds are about 50-50 for saving hearing on a small tumor. So if you, if you, if you do surgery, you might wake up with no, non-functional hearing. But if you do win that, that, that lottery, then you're more likely to retain it longer than if you did observation radiation. At least that's what most people think. Do these tumors ever turn malignant into cancer? By themselves, so uh, being untreated, the chance of that's very, very low. There's probably a very, very small risk that with radiation it can change it into a, tu- into a malignancy or a cancer. But even that risk is really low. We, we put it in the category of about 1 in 10,000 risk, so extremely low. Pretty small. All right, acoustic neuroma, also called a vestibular schwannoma. It's a rare benign tumor of the nerve that connects your inner ear to your brain, but as we've just heard, it may affect as many as 1 out of 500 people over the age of 70. Exactly. The most common symptoms include hearing loss on one side, tinnitus, or ringing in the ear on the affected side, and balance problems. Fortunately, multiple treatment options, most of which are successful. Our thanks to ENT specialist, Dr. Matthew Carlson. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Dr. Carlson. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll cover a topic that's difficult for men to discuss, genital skin conditions. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. The skin is the body's largest organ. Now think about it that. You know, you sort of think it's the liver, but it's the skin. And diseases of the skin can occur anywhere, including the genitals, your private parts. <laughs> your private parts. Private parts. Skin issues related to the genitals can be itchy, painful, and embarrassing, but they're actually fairly common. On today's program, we'll talk about some of the more common genital skin problems in males. Our guest is Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Don Davis. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. It's my pleasure to be here. And thank you for allowing me to talk about men's health because it's very important. And let's start with pearly penile papules. Yes. Pearly penile papules are a common reason that men seek dermatologist input because up to 40% of male adults have pearly penile papules on their penis. And essentially what they are are little um, small pearly beads that usually happen around the coronal sulcus or the bottom of the head of the penis. And they look like little um, frog spawn or caviar uh, nodules or little tapioca pudding eyeballs um, that hang off of the coronal head of the penis. And they're simply an overgrowth of blood vessels that happen probably due to friction because the genitals are busy. They sit in clothes and you walk and you sit and you do all sorts of things. And they can scare a lot of men because think people think that they're a cancerous growth or an infection and they worry that they might spread it elsewhere to their partners. But it's, nothing to worry about. They're absolutely nothing to worry about, but we need to distinguish them from other things that can be worrisome like sexually transmitted infections. But and you said quite common. They're very common. Up to 40% of men 
who are adults are thought to have pearly penile papules on their penis. You can get treatment for them. If you don't like them, they're cosmetically bothersome to you. Um, we can trim them off or freeze them off. But unfortunately, they tend to regrow because they were thought to be due most likely to friction, although we can't necessarily prove that. I think I'd keep mine. (laughs) Will you freeze them off, did you say? You can. You can freeze them off or you can remove them um, by the small uh, biopsy procedures or perhaps laser. But they simply regrow because we don't know exactly why they occur, but we believe they occur because of friction. Do they come and go then? Do you? They don't usually come and go. Once they come, they stay. They stay. Okay. All right. You mentioned, in, inferred, that you can actually have cancer of the penis. True? Yes. So squamous cell carcinoma. So you can get cancer anywhere on the skin, and you can get multiple different types of cancer. And that also includes the penile area. If a gentleman is going to have skin cancer in his genital area, it's most likely squamous cell carcinoma, which is a skin cancer that most people are familiar with. They just don't think about it happening on the genitalia. And it can happen on the penis. It's much more common on the penis than elsewhere in the genital area in men. When that happens, it's usually on the penile head or on the foreskin, especially if you have certain risk factors. Um, Men are more likely to have squamous cell carcinoma on the penis um, if they have uncircumcised skin or if they have a long-term history of smoking or of diabetes or of genital warts or if they have a a suppressed immune system or a ton of sun exposure. Uh, You said a genital wart. How different does it look from a genital wart? That's a great question. So Squamous cell carcinoma can look like an erosion, sort of like you abraded something, like you skinned something if you fell down and skinned your knee, but instead you skinned something else. It can also look like a growth. Warts tend to look like a wart. They tend to be small and attached at the surface, and then they have like a pebbly surface. And a lot of times you can see little punctate hemorrhages or little dots of blood under the surface of the scaly skin, which are the warts on blood supply. Warts survive so well on the skin because they grow their own blood supply. They're very smart. Warts are caused by a virus called HPV. Now, having certain strains of HPV makes you more likely to have genital cancer, which is why with certain celebrities being... um, more open about their health history. We know that certain HPV strains can um, cause anal rectal cancer and things, but they also can cause genital cancers, including of the penis. So we like to treat uh, genital warts proactively. And we also, of course, want to detect squamous cell carcinoma on the penis. Does a pearly penile papule look like a skin cancer or a genital wart? No. A pearly okay. penile papule is very small, and it looks like a little water droplet um, okay. hanging from the coronal head of the penis okay. versus something that's a wound that's either eroded, like you skinned yourself, and it's not healing after two to three weeks, especially if you don't have a reason for the, you to have a wound, or if it's a tumorous growth, it's a nodule that is stable in size and keeps growing or is painful, we'd want that to get assessed. I hate to ask, but what's the treatment for cancer of the penis? That's a great question. It just depends on where it's at and how deep it is. And so the first thing is detection. So making sure that gentlemen are aware that the disease can exist so that they come into their primary care provider, a dermatologist or urologist who's a penile special surgeon so that we can detect it and take a small biopsy of the growth or the erosion to make sure that that is indeed squamous cell carcinoma because part of the problem with squamous cell carcinoma on the penis is you don't necessarily look down there all the time and you're a little embarrassed to go to the doctor or you just don't think it can exist so you don't if you don't know that something exists you can't go to the doctor to get it figured out and so 
the issue with penile cancer is awareness so that we can have early detection. So that would mean you could potentially remove it locally without an amputation. Yeah, we're hopeful. Yes, absolutely. That would be our goal. All right. All right, that contact dermatitis. Yes, contact dermatitis. So... I think people are well aware that the skin is the largest body organ. Thank you very much for promoting my favorite (laughs) organ. And it regenerates 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and it has a lot of skin surface. It's the size of an NFL football field if you were to stretch it out, which is why it's the largest body organ. But what's so interesting is we think about being contact allergic to various things. Like, for example, people can be sensitive to nickel. And they think about that if they get an itch under their watch or under their rings or their earrings. But we forget that the genitalia sees a lot of different chemicals because of soaps and perfumes and over-the-counter medications. And it gets a lot of activity because of friction and sweat and occlusion with wearing clothes and sitting down and standing up and walking and running. And so the skin down there... And so that makes you predisposed that if you're kind of a sensitive person, you could develop an allergic contact dermatitis to things that you're using in that area. And then you'll have a red, burning, itchy genitalia. And you might think it's jock itch or you might think it's a sexually transmitted infection when actually it's a preservative or a chemical in something that you're using like a body wash or an over-the-counter lotion or something. Or condoms. Can you be a yes, yes, absolutely, because condoms have rubber and latex. Even the ones that are rubber and latex-free have other chemicals that you can be allergic to. A lot of them have lubricants that you can be sensitive to. So, yes, absolutely. All right. How, what about, uh, you talked about genital warts. What about genital herpes? So, and by the way, you mentioned that if you have genital warts, they should be treated. Yes. So we like to treat genital warts, first of all, because we, we care about your own health and we don't want them to spread. And certain strains of warts can be oncogenic, meaning predisposing you to cancer. Hmm. Uh, secondly, we don't want it to spread to other people if you're sexually active, because once you acquire the HPV virus, it's difficult to eradicate entirely. So warts of the genitalia are caused by HPV, the human papillomavirus, and there are over a hundred subtypes of human papillomavirus, but certain subtypes predilect for certain areas of the skin. And then herpes or canker sores um, are caused by the herpes simplex virus, which can be present in your mouth or can be present in your genitalia. And we used to think that one form of herpes was only for the mouth, and another form of the herpes virus was only for the genitalia. Type 1 and type 2. Correct. Yeah. But now we know that that's not the case, that you can have either type in either location, although one is more common in one area than in another. And so we like to also treat you for the herpes virus because we don't want you to um, have difficulty from that. But you can't cure it. Right? No, you house the virus once you've acquired it for the rest of your life, but we want to control it so that you don't spread it to others. But can't you spread it to others even if it's not active? You can. You can spread the herpes virus to others, um, especially without sexual precautions like condoms and things like that. But having an active florid infection increases your risk of transmission more than having a treated infection where you're simply a carrier instead of having a carrier with an outbreak. All right. We hit many of the common ones, skin diseases of the genitals. And if you're a man, it can be embarrassing to make an appointment to see your doctor if you've got a rash or a lesion down there. But it's important. Some conditions can lead to permanent skin changes, even cancer. But most issues can be treated and cured if you seek help. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Dermatologist Dr. Don Davis. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.